0: Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of spoilers specials. This one is dedicated to the. Hang on, I just can't do my fingers. Fifth? No, sixth movie in the Transformers franchise, but the first spin off and the first prequel. It is, of course, Travis Knight's Bumblebee, in which we get to explore the origin of everyone's favourite, lovable VW Beetle slash Camaro. Slash whatever it is that they turn into in future installments. Joining me over the next 40 minutes or so to talk about this film in detail are two of my favourite podcasters in disguise. First of all, we have... That was my little Transformers (laughs) night. Do you like it? Amazing. Our
1: geek queen, Helen O'Hara. How are you? I am well, thank you. I am all the better, of course, for having seen Bumblebee. Twice. (laughs) Twice. Twice. Good stuff.
0: Uh, Next up, it is our Transformers expert... A man who's
2: played with more Transformers toys than he cares to admit. Hello, James Dyer. Hello. I'm abandoning my usual position as Negatron in favour of a an all new incarnation as Optimist Prime for this film. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I loved it. Loved what, happened? what happened? It's very hard to say. I've I've been a long time critic of Michael Bay's Transformers film. Like I quite I quite enjoyed the first one up to a point and then I have hated the others with the fire of a thousand suns Mm -hmm. uh, because they're terrible movies that are incredibly badly made and it it baffles me that so many people seem to enjoy them however and I went with that particular baggage at what what point is Negatron becoming Optimus Prime (laughs) I went with that baggage into Bumblebee and yet all of it was sort of shed within about five minutes because it's a delightful lovable little feast of a film Uh, and the best Transformers movie by far so there you go wow okay Mm. wow
1: I'd put it welcome. Up, I'd put it up there with the first one. But then I really liked the first one. I think yeah. the first one was uh you know, just solid, solid storytelling. I really enjoyed it. It has and personality. Yeah, it does. Um and, and like this, it's a story about a teenager in a car and, mm. and it kind of works on that level. Um I mean so, this is
0: essentially the same movie.
1: Yeah, in, in some <laughs> ways, yeah it is. Um but obviously, you know, set a little bit further back in the past, which gives it that lovely eighties sheen, which is great. But um but yeah, it's uh it's definitely a welcome break from the Transformers sequels, which have been exhausting to watch. Bahem.
0: Yeah, so much so that I actually genuinely did have to kind of figure out which one this was in the series mm. because I can't quite remember. But the last one, of course, as we all know, was Transformers <laughs> The Last Knight. This movie has benefited from a knight oh, of a different stripe. You
1: like that? No. I just made that up. Yeah.
0: Travis Knight, the film's director, uh, of course, more famous for his movies for Laika. Mm. And Helen... You like this film a lot, which is why <laughs> I chose you, Like Optimus Prime, I chose you Thanks. to go and talk to Travis Knight and have a good old chat with him about this movie. Did you do it?
1: I did, yeah. Okay. I didn't just like go to the hotel and then bugger off again once you dropped off the stuff.
0: No, that would, that would have been wildly irresponsible. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, so you spoke to him about a great many things. I did. Spoilerific. Indeed. Because this is... The Spoiler Special. Indeed. So if you haven't... Seen it. Then... Go away. And then... Come back after you've seen it, and then listen. Then, well done. There we go. Wow,
1: that was so much better than it was not rehearsal. That was really, really good. <laughs> it should be perfectly obvious. There was no rehearsal.
0: <laughs> there's never been any rehearsal in the Empire Podcast. And next time, we'll put that to music. Okay, I feel I feel there's a musical in that, there's, a musical number.
1: There's a musical in all our hearts, really, isn't there?
2: There really is.
1: Even James's.
2: Even yeah, I mean, it's a thrash metal
1: <laughs> kind of ballad, but yeah. You lie, you lovely Miz.
2: <laughs> that is true. I have seen it twelve times. I can't believe her. I still can't. When was the last time you saw Liam It's been a fair few years, actually. I've not seen it recently. Obviously, I saw the, uh, the, the film version would be the last version I saw, but I haven't seen it in the theatre. I'm, I'm overdue, actually. I'm overdue another... Another round. Let's go see Les Mis. Let's go see Les Mis. Is it still on the West End? Yeah, it's never left. Really? Yeah. yes. Helen, you're you're not you're not around. I'm not
1: going to be around. No, sorry.
2: You had made other plans. I mean, just, I yeah, yeah. I've made any other plans. Literally any other
1: plans. I've seen it three times actually. And I feel like that's enough actually. May not y'all, including. Maybe the-
2: I'll go and see it on my own. <laughs> see. The the day
1: before you see it, what what will you be singing? (laughs) One day more. (laughs) This has gotten a little bit off track. It has. Here's
0: Helen talking to (laughs) Travis Knight, the director of Bumblebee, about all sorts of stuff. And yes, it is spoilerific, so be warned. But also, enjoy.
1: Welcome to the Empire podcast, Travis Knight. Thanks for joining us. Um, And tell me this, how did you get involved? I I haven't actually heard this one.
3: So, yeah, so it was about 2 years ago now. Um I had uh, I would finished my film Kubo and the Two Strings. It had gone out of the world and uh and I got this what I thought at the time a, a relatively random phone call uh from uh from Paramount and the producers of the Transformers franchise who said they wanted to speak to me about a, about a new Transformers film. And uh I thought for sure they'd got the wrong number because <laughs> I don't know that anyone thought the the obvious director of a Transformers film would be a guy who just did this, you know, stop motion, you know, artisanal stop motion movie. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I, 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 chatted with them and the more we got into it, the more sense it made to me because, you know, they, they, I think they you know, at the time they were thinking about expanding the Transformers universe and taking it in different directions and and trying to think about how, like the different kinds of stories they could tell with, with these characters. And as, as they started talking about, you know, adding some variation to, to those films, the more excited I got, because that's that's you know, few people knew it at the time, but I was I was an enormous Transformers fan when I was a kid. I absolutely loved them. You know, as a child who grew up in the '80s, uh, I remember the first time that I saw the animated miniseries back in you know back in the mid '80s. You know, I watched the cartoons, I played with the toys, I read the comic books, and it started to spark all these all these memories, all these feelings of nostalgia, and 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 then thinking how we could. You know, with these, these films, which are often grandiose and big and filled with spectacle, um, the thought of changing that perspective and actually focusing, focusing in on a smaller corner of that big canvas and really telling a personal and intimate story about one of these robots— uh, it, it, it was really exciting to me. And so I you know, I, I met with Paramount, I met with the producers, I talked about the kind of movie I would make if they were foolish enough to allow me to do it. And within a day or two, they, they called up my guys and said, yeah, we wanted to do it. And I was now, two years later, here I am. Wow.
1: So... Um- was it always a sort of an 80s movie, the, the sort of almost an Amblin-esque feel to it, I think?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it just made complete sense. As you start to think about, okay, telling an origin story about a Transformer, it made sense to set it in the era where the Transformers originated, the era they were born, which was the mid-80s. And so and the great thing about that is that we could evoke a lot of, you know, the, you know, the great things of that era, the music, the design, the fashion, the films. Uh, and that was the area that the era that i grew up in and so it was just kind of tapping into that aspect of my childhood and for me filmically the 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 biggest influence on me then and probably to this day was steven spielberg and i just loved those beautiful coming-of-age amblin films and they always were were filled with a sense of wonder and magic and you know and and and, and laughter and tears and they really you know got to really you know got you where it hurt. I mean, I remember the first movie that moved me to tears was E.T. I saw it in the theater with my mom and it really resonated with me. It stuck with my ribs. And so the idea of telling a story like that, that had those that that spirit that painted in those same colors uh, with this this big, expansive franchise was uh, was really exciting.
1: I mean, I, I felt like I, I felt E.T.'s influence in the, in, basically in the house wrecking scene. Mm-hmm. I feel like in a lot of those, you know, alien comes home with you movies. Right. There is a house wrecking scene. Right. Something gets broken really, really badly. Was that, was that conscious or is that just, that kind of flows from the character? It, maybe? It's
3: on some level, you know, a scene like that sort of flows naturally from, mm-hmm. you know, the, the idea of what happens when something that has no familiarity with, with our world Tries to learn the rules of the world and and does it poorly. Um, you know we see that with uh, when, when Charlie uh, takes Bumblebee out uh, to um, to TP and egg this. You know the, the her uh, you know the high school villainess and her house. Uh, we see you know these, I started asking myself what are these kind of rites of passage for for teen kids? You know you know and, and and part of that I don't know how how it is over in in the UK but in America you know TPing a house, egging a house. That's something that you know little mischievous teens do kind of on the regular and, and certainly in the eighties. And so it, it was fun to, to think about it through that prism, but then how does your life get complicated when you have an enormous, you know, 13-foot robot. And what happens when you try to bring one of those things on one of these typical high, high school mischief I've minutes. often wondered it. <laughs> Many people wonder it. And so that scene there, you see how things can go wrong. The scene in the house, that just felt like a natural extension of this big creature that's in her life that tries to somehow fit in.
1: Let's, let's talk about uh, B himself for a moment, because the introduction to him, I thought, was, was really, really fascinating. Uh, first of all, his fight skills are incredible. And he kicks a head that he's just beheaded at someone else. And knocks them out as well it 's a, a, a playful
3: it 's a playful beheading <laughs>
1: it 's a playful beheading i apologize <laughs> yes, but also and, and this may be me not being a, an expert in transformer 's lore, uh, but the fact that he 's in car form even on cybertron so it 's not even that they only become cars here there 's a
3: it's yeah it's i mean a similar he, looking car it, 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 on some level yes yeah. i mean they, uh, the, you know tr- the transformers if you go back to the original animated series the the uh, the Transformers still had alt-modes, even on Cybertron. Now, they weren't Earth vehicles, uh, but, like, for instance, you see the Decepticons when they go on this, this, this strafing run, early on, on Cybertron, they, they, you know, they jump off this, this tower and they transform into these things that sort of look like, uh, you know, jets or aircraft. And they are these things called tetra jets, which was their, their alt mode when they were on, right. on, uh, on Cybertron, they look kind of like a fighter jet, but they're a little bit alien. And so when Bumblebee, uh, we see Bumblebee in his, in his, uh, in his car, you know, quote unquote car form on Cybertron, it's sort of like this Sid Mead futuristic car. It's not a, you know, it's not an earth car, but it, it's, it's a, a means of conveyance is kind of, futuristic. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was, that's his introduction where we kind of see that he's, he's funny, he's a little bit cheeky, he's got a lot of energy, but he's also kind of a badass. Yeah. And uh, that is an aspect of who he is.
1: Absolutely. Was it really important to have Optimus in there as well? I mean, it was as a viewer. Super,
3: so. super important. I mean, you see, you, see uh, you know, one of the things that we try to do is showcase how Charlie and Bumblebee are essentially mirrors of each other. And so, you know, we, we, we find Charlie later, we meet her later, we understand that she's endured a sense of loss. She has kind of no sense of home anymore because she's lost. This, this, her, she's lost her father, this man that she loves. And we wanted to have a similar thing with Bumblebee that he's lost his home. He, you know, his, his, his his planet has essentially been devastated and his family is gone. And he lost this guy who's his father figure, this kind of warm, Uh, you know, he's a, he's a, he's an incredible military leader, Optimus Prime. He's the the most iconic transformer, but he, he's also, you can see just by gesture, the way he speaks to Bumblebee, that there's something else there, that there's a a, kind of a warm relationship. There's an an almost father son relationship between the two of them. And he loses him at the beginning of the movie, much like Charlie loses her father. Yeah.
1: You see that I felt I felt like reflected later on when she's um, when she's trying to shock Bumblebee back to life. Essentially, mm-hmm. it felt like it's what she wanted to be able to do for her dad when he had his heart attack. Isn't right? It?
3: Yeah, yeah. That's that's right. That's right. It's like you can see her channeling these things, and and she's even saying things in, in the midst of her grief that uh, about how she you know I can't lose you too, and she see I can I can fix I can fix this, I can bring you back, and it's all you know. She's in that moment, she's losing this this thing that she loves, and it's uh, it's it's very much meant to be. Uh, be related to her losing her father earlier in the film, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, t- tell me about the Transformers designs in those scenes as well, because it feels like we've gone a little bit back to the old school, a little bit more um, streamlined, maybe than the the most recent films.
3: As an animator, one of the things you, that you always think about is something silhouette, its shape, and how something moves. Uh, so when uh, we when when we set the beginning of the film on Cybertron, I wanted to see. The robots essentially in their original form, the, the form that I was exposed to them because there was something that was so beautiful in their simplicity. Uh, and because they actually had to physically transform when they made the toys, they were an engineering marvel, but they had to be relatively simple in order to change all those you know, all this for all the shapes to fit together. Um, and so. The, the side benefit is that anytime you saw the transformers in battle, even though the the camera might be moving in some crazy kinetic way, and there might be you know flashes of robots flying all over the place, you always knew who was who based on their silhouette and their color. They were all distinctive, and so I wanted to go back to that feeling. I wanted to go back to that vibe, and so setting the the opening of the movie on Cybertron, I felt like it allowed us the opportunity to really see these creatures in their, in their, in their initial form back, you know, back in the mid eighties. And, uh, Oh my God, it was so much fun bringing these characters to life. Cause those are, those are the, uh, those are the characters from my childhood and to see them kind of spring to life on the big screen. Oh, I was a real thrill. Yeah.
1: And Cybertron itself looked, again, more like the cartoons. And yeah, like the yeah. Movies.
3: I mean, we, you know, the the opening scene on in the animated series, it was, uh, you know, we we see Cybertron for the first time with that weird little hollowed up yellow amber core, and you meet uh, Wheeljack and Bumblebee in that very first scene, and that's kind of what the feeling we're trying to evoke here. And we see the fall of Cybertron. And we just we just kind of do it on a on a big on a big level. Yeah.
1: Uh, let's talk about then Earth. Um, Agent Jack Burns of Sector Seven. Um, was it important to kind of bring Sector 7 back in? Because it was, it was a nice little sort of running running thing through the. Through
3: there's the- a, yeah, there's a, um, you know, we wanted to uh, have a foot in each world. There's the, you know, the last 10 years of, of, uh, of Transformers big screen movies uh, directed by Michael Bay have a ton of mythology and also the original wave of Transformers had its own mythology that it sometimes are, are connected and sometimes they're not with the, with the films. And so I wanted to have a foot in each world where we were paying tribute to the last 10 years of live action films, but also a foot in the, in the origins of these things where we could pay tribute to you know that, that initial wave of comics and cartoons. And so Sector 7 was something that evolved out of, out of Michael's films. And so there's a, um, you know, it's essentially this secret society, this, this black ops military group that, that hunts Transformers. And um, and there's a lot of little kind of subtle nods to the stuff that Michael's done that even if, you know, even if you've never seen a Transformers film, you could sit and watch Bumblebee and, yeah. and you wouldn't and wouldn't matter. But for those people who are fans of the live action series or for fans of, you know, the cartoons, there's a ton of layers of, of little Easter eggs and whatnot. And Sector 7 is one of them, including uh, Jack Burns's toady, who is uh, Agent Simmons. Who was it was essentially a young uh, John Taturo who was, becomes one of the heavies later in the in the in the series, um, but yeah, it's uh, you know with 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 John uh, with with John Cena, you know I wanted a, I wanted a an actor who could be you know physically formidable, mm-hmm. but um, but who could have you know layers of, of menace and aggression and also uh, when necessary a humor and and pathos. And John was a bit of a revelation for me because, uh, you know, I'd seen him as a comedic actor on a, on a number of different levels, but I hadn't seen him do some of the things that we asked him to do in this movie. And uh, I was incredibly impressed by, by what he was able to bring to this movie. And he was a real joy to work with.
1: Uh, he, he was, yeah, he was really good. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, just while we're on him, his friend at the beginning, is he OK? Because I wasn't sure if he was literally lying there dying.
3: Or, <laughs> Danny, uh, <laughs> poor Danny. Uh, yeah, He had a date, yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah. well, he, did, he, had, he didn't make it to the date. I'll guarantee you that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, he he was okay. I mean, the thing that we wanted to see with the, was the difference between Bumblebee arriving and a Decepticon arriving. And so Bumblebee, yeah, he's a he can be a force of destruction, and that's the way that 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 Burns looks at him when he sees him because he comes he comes storming down from the heavens and he creates this chaos. And a lot of these guys, they get hurt, they get injured pretty badly, but nobody gets nobody gets killed. They just get hurt. And uh, and from from Burns's perspective, it it looks like an act of aggression. It looks like an act of war. And so when they when they end up chasing this this thing, this other, this strange metallic alien, um, it's with good reason. It's this thing. This thing, you know, hurt their guys. Then when we see a little bit later in the sequence, we see the Decepticon arrive and you can see that the damage the Decepticon creates is completely intentional and those guys are murdered <laughs> they're incinerated the only person left from that from that whole cr- squad is John Cena's character Jack Burns
1: that, that's what I thought but I wanted yeah. to be clear um, uh, I also liked about his character that he's he's the first person I think I remember in any of these films to point out that they literally call themselves Decepticons and maybe we can't believe everything it's they a say. It,
3: it's a funny little meta nod that uh, you know you have the Autobots the Decepticons and 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 so uh, yeah that's that's I was a. Uh, I thought that was a very clever gag. Yes. Yes,
1: that was awesome. Um, and and I mean, in terms of you know, you, you've talked about the Michael Bay films. Did, did, was there were there there points of kind of canon that you had to stick to? Did you feel like constricted that you you had to meet certain? things or not contradict certain things uh, yes
3: I mean there's there, there is always concern with that although you know I think the continuity uh, is certainly not a huge priority of Michaels I mean he prioritizes other things and you know incredible visuals and spectacle and and, and fun uh, but uh, you know even within the films themselves as, as much as I've enjoyed them there there are inconsistencies and uh, and so with this film it's like if you're going to be consistent with one thing you'd probably be inconsistent with another thing so but I but it was important that it had a degree of continuity, and and so you know, wanting to tell a self-contained story that wasn't you know necessarily bound by you know decades of mythology, it was a little bit tricky. We had had to simplify it, and so I wanted to make sure that you know an audience can come. To this film, and it presupposes no knowledge of the Transformers. They could watch it from beginning to end and have a good time, get all the information, get all the emotion, get all the fun that they needed to have out of it. Um, but at the same time, someone who was a Transformers fan could find other layers of entertainment. And so, yes, there are definitely things that you you know that you couldn't play around with, but there were some other things we did we did take some liberties with.
1: Everyone in this uh, reality seems to really like Alf. So is that, a, uh, is that a personal favorite of yours that you snuggled in? Yeah,
3: that's absolutely me. <laughs> Nobody else cares about Alf. That was me. That was me putting that in there. <laughs> I loved Alf. Alf was amazing. Alf was great, and you know, and Alf stands for Alien Life Form, so it was a bit of a nod to it was to, to Bumblebee and his origins as yeah, well.
1: That's fair. He comes up a lot in the New York Times crossword. I've been trying to, to do it. Alf does. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah. I didn't know that. That's useful. Um, there you go. That's a that's a clue. Every six months, for All right. free. There you go. Um, I was also interested that the te- Decepticons may have invented the web.
3: The Decepticon. I don't care what Al Gore says. The Decepticons <laughs> invented the internet. Um, yeah, you know it's it's always it's one of the aspects of Michael's films that I always thought was really fun that that kind of this alternate history how you know decept- how the uh, you know the Transformers how we think we know the story about how some piece of technology or some historical event how it actually unfolded that in reality it's just propaganda and the Transformers were responsible. You know we we looked at a number of different things like what was going on in the '80s what was happening in the mid '80s and there were a couple of different ideas I had for you know what this what the Decepticons might have been responsible for how they kind of Brought something to our to our world and the uh, the the Internet was a fun thing just because it was, you know, we can we can see how, um, you know, we can see how they use it for for the plot to find to find Bumblebee they use you know their technology our technology bind it all together and that's how they can end up find that's how they end up tracking Bumblebee down but it was also kind of a, a, fu- a fun thing because in the in Michael's film they uh, the, his first film the, the, the first Transformers live action film they the, the Transformers the, the Decepticons essentially use the internet to find you know Sam and Bumblebee and all these guys uh, to track down Megatron and all that stuff. so that they started the thing that they ended up using again years later to track them down I thought yeah. that was kind of a fun nod
1: that is actually yeah it also explains a lot about the internet i feel like all the trolls it's and the boss
3: the internet is evil <laughs> forces are good but it's also got sure. it's dark corners Yeah,
1: which would which that would totally make sense yeah um, tell me about powell as well you've got your first contact uh, expert who who does not do well out of first contact
3: he does yeah. not he does not fare well in the end uh with with uh, with dr powell we wanted to sh- show kind of two philosophical things that are at odds with the, you know with with John John's character Burns the military man who kind of th- he's he's a hammer he's you know he sees a nail everywhere he thinks everything's a threat and his job is to protect us from that threat uh, makes sense I can sure. buy into that as a motivation and then on the other hand you've got this guy who's this high minded scientist who who recognizes that. You know, any any contact with uh, an advanced civilization, alien species could be could be used for mankind's benefit, which, again, that also makes sense. How can we somehow forge some kind of a diplomatic relationship with these things, learn from each other, help each other and and, and benefit mankind? You can see you kind know, of the yin and the yang of that. Um, in the end, they're both wrong. Uh, Powell gets the gets the worst of it. But uh, the part of that is just his naivete. But, uh, we, you know, we wanted to show that kind of that that duality of kind of looking at looking at alien species both as a threat and as a as a benefit. Yeah.
1: I also wanted to ask in terms of the Sector 7 scenes about the kind of war room scene because you've just the lit ceiling mm-hmm. instantly made me think of, of Doctor Strange.
3: <laughs> there's a little bit of Doctor Strange love in there. Yeah, that's that's a little bit by design. You know, for the most part, we were evoking 80 cinema. But uh, where we could, where it made sense, we wanted to, you know, give nods to the masters. And yeah, there's a little bit of that going fair on.
1: Enough, fair enough. So more war games than, than Strange Love. Than war
3: games. War games mostly came into play in, you know, how we designed like the computer technology and the kind of the big Screens and the Cray supercomputers and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, I I thought about the Whopper from War Games, and uh, and th- that was more of a uh, that was more of kind of a, a, a graphic influence that we use for the kind of the big computer scene uh, in, the, in the in the in the midst of Sector Seven.
1: And what what about the other eighties influences, like music wise? This has all the hits, really, and not the obvious hits necessarily, but like a huge range. W- were those personal favorites? Was it a sort of you know? A committee of you getting together and pitching for your favorite song. It was a
3: committee of one. It was just me. <laughs> uh, you know, it was a couple of things. Uh, you know, obviously you're trying to, uh, uh, you know, music does so much to evoke a, an emotion, a feeling, a memory. Uh, music is important in our lives. It's important for Charlie. And it's actually important for Bumblebee in the sense that it's the way that Charlie It's the way Charlie kind of interprets the world and relates to the world. And it's also the way that Charlie, something that Charlie uses to metaphorically and literally give Bumblebee his voice back. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, it's a really powerful thing. And so, you know, because this movie was set in the eighties and, and specifically, I said it in 87 specifically for a reason, because I wanted to use a number of songs that if I had said it before, then I couldn't use. And, uh, and so I, I felt that in 87 was, was one of the best years of that, of that decade for music. And for
1: girlfriend in a coma? Cause she mentions it.
3: So <laughs> <you>. <laughs> I definitely wanted to use girlfriend in a coma. Um, and, and, you know, so, uh, Charlie, uh, she introduces Bumblebee to, uh, to music that she loves and part of that being the smiths and uh you know he responds by you know ejecting the tape across the room he is not having that that reminds me a little bit about when i tried to introduce my friends to the smiths and how they basically (laughs) wanted to throw the tape across the room but uh you know charlie's music musical tastes um they mirror mine exactly uh, everything that she loves, you know, uh, Elvis Costello, the Pretenders, uh, the Smiths, uh, T-Rex. These are all bands that I loved. And so that was, uh, you know, Charlie, of course, is way cooler than I ever was. But that, <laughs> that was that was a way of kind of fusing your own personality into your characters. And then, you know, we wanted to to, to you know, evoke some of the, the you know, the popular rock songs and stuff like that. And and, you know, little, even little glorious slices of 80s fromage, like, you know, Steve Winwood's Higher Love. But we use that as a way to showcase kind of a, and and to presage the, uh The relationship that these two these two characters have when she meets Bumblebee in the in the junkyard and he's just a VW Beetle, we we do it over higher love, and Mm -hmm. we're meant to show kind of what this relationship is going to ultimately become.
1: Yeah, yeah, Um, and and he is not a Rick Astley fan.
3: He's not a Rick Astley fan. He's he's still finding his musical taste. You know, he doesn't like the Smiths. He doesn't like (laughs) Rick Astley, but you know, he's learning.
1: Yeah, well, he's he seems to be very into Take on Me, so I guess that's the start. Yeah, Yeah, he likes Uh Aha,
3: but who doesn't like Uh Aha? I mean, come on. (laughs) It's the thing that binds us all together,
1: and the Breakfast Club as well, movie-wise. Um, yeah, you know, it's a, why why that one in particular because there are Cause a wealth of because it's awesome movies. Okay,
3: okay. <laughs> um, the. Uh, Yeah, uh, it was one of my favorite movies from that era. And, uh, you know, John Hughes was a huge influence on me and on this film. Uh, One of the things I loved about John Hughes' movies was that he always looked at adolescence and and he treated it seriously. He looked at it with sincerity, with honesty, with authenticity, and he would capture kind of the fun and the humor, but also the pathos, the pathos of, uh, you know, that that change that we go through in adolescence. And I just thought that that bringing that perspective to the movie that, that way of looking at adolescence uh, was was important for this film and it also paid tribute to one of the one of the great uh, filmmakers of the era and you know as far as you know his, his body of work goes you know uh, Breakfast Club was one of the best. I just thought it was just so beautifully written and, and so much fun and it has a great benefit of having that, that incredible gesture yes. that he copies <laughs> and it also has the benefit of having Judd Nelson who voiced uh, uh, the lead Transformer Hot Rod in the original animated film
1: so that works on a number many many
3: levels many many layers wow we think all these things through it's not happenstance
1: (laughs) sure I believe you Mm -hmm. and um, actually Memo seems like a very John Williams character as well
3: John Hughes you mean John
1: Hughes sorry yeah John Hughes
3: there's some John Williams in the score sure. for sure. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah, he kind of is. It's uh, it, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of me in all these characters. I mean, Memo's a big nerd. Um, and when you look at, uh, when you look at his bedroom, it's essentially a carbon copy of my, uh, of my, yeah. of my bedroom at that age. It's a wonderland of eighties teenage nerddom. Uh, but yeah, he's a lot of fun. He's a sweet, endearing character who, um, who, you know, it's, 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 it's uh, on some level he's, a guy that's invisible to Charlie um, she and and through uh, through circumstance, she has to see him for the first time. And she realizes what what a beautiful soul he is. And that's what the, what forges their friendship together. But again, it, it you know, it shows how, you know, how hiding how how seeing people in a certain way, how kind of putting your own projections on something, turning your back on something, how if we look at the world through beginner's eyes and see things as they are, as opposed to kind of how, how we think they should be, how it can open up you know, worlds of possibilities for us.
1: Um, uh, you've also got a karate kid in there and her little brother. Yes. I suppose yes. that again.
3: Yes, there's that. The dog, uh, the dog Conan, uh-huh. sp- uh, pronounced uh, appropriately like the awesome 80s barbarian and not the <laughs> awesome talk show host from America. Uh, Conan is the name of their dog and he has a little karate kid bandana around his neck.
1: Oh. I didn't yeah. notice that. Nice one. And the box, the, the um, her her stepdad stole a box of Malamar's once. That seems like an awfully specific reference. <laughs> is that coming from somewhere that you know?
3: That of? that comes from nowhere. But but uh, but Ron himself, Stephen uh, Schneider, who is the actor who plays Ron, uh, that was an ad lib that he did, and uh, he's just a, he's so funny. I mean, the the the, uh, the cutting room f- floor is littered. With those kinds of strange references <laughs> that uh, that our actors would bring, and uh, couldn't put them all in, otherwise the movie would have been two and a half hours long. But I, I really thought that one was a lot of fun.
1: That was awesome, especially the answer.
3: Yes, we know John's answer. Yes,
1: <laughs> and, and and Haley as well. Did she did she get to bring a lot to her character?
3: incredible she's so incredible it's uh, you know I think she is absolutely one of the, fine, the i think the finest uh, actor of her generation i mean she can she can break your heart with a glance, she can lift your spirit with a with a posture change i mean she's always got so much behind her eyes. Uh, this movie rises or falls based on her performance, and she is such an extraordinary actor she's just absolutely fearless there's the old uh, saw that directing is ninety percent casting, and and I think in this case it's right that uh, you know having her as as my leading lady meant that okay at least that part of the movie is going to work, <laughs> okay. and it did because she was essentially the, the the springboard for our animators too. When I looked at the when I looked at Bumblebee, and I would I would talk to our animators. This is this is you know weeks and weeks and weeks, months even after we had finished shooting, uh, as we were working on the post process the the animation. And talking about how these two are mirrors of each other is like Haley has such incredible subtlety and range that Bumblebee had to evoke the same kind of feeling, the same kind of emotion that, you know, this movie, the visual effects in this movie weren't necessarily about spectacle. They're about character and Bumblebee had to be as real as Haley was. And so in that way, you know, the, the, the animators really had to completely become actors and as they, as they typically are, but it was, it was about, you know, building a performance that could live on the same level as what Haley brought. And uh, I think they did, but uh, she set the bar really high for them. She, She's just an extraordinary actor. She's
1: amazing. Um, so, so are you leaving the door open to, you know, a bumblebee too? Or could this be the, the sort of other kind
3: of... Oh, that's I mean, that's certainly not up to me. I mean, if uh, if the world demands a Bumblebee, too, I'm sure there will be a Bumblebee, too. But I never looked at this film that way. I looked at this film as a self-contained thing that even though in my mind, uh, I imagine the adventures that Bumblebee goes on after the, this, this film ends. Uh, that's always been the case in, in every movie that I've done is that I, you know, I, 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 I try to tell a story that um, is is. Is meant to showcase the most important event in, in our characters' lives. And of course, there's you know, there's many significant events that could happen afterwards, but you know, I imagine uh, what what happens to him. I imagine what happens to Charlie, and you know, I can imagine their stories together and apart. Um, but for me, I wanted to make sure we told this story, and it was it was self-contained. Uh, and if the world wants more, I'm sure uh, I'm sure somebody will give them more.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what's next for you? Do you know yet?
3: Well, so uh, 15 years ago, I started this uh, little animation boutique called Leica, and, uh, and we've been making films since then, and uh, we continue to make films. Our, uh, you know The next uh, movie that coming out of our shop is called Missing Link, and it opens in the spring in the UK, uh, uh, distributed by Lionsgate. Um, and it's, it's a ton of fun. It's really unlike anything we've done before. It's just a beautiful movie. I'm really proud of it. Um, and you know, I'm developing more films at Leica and, you know, my goal here is just to continue to tell interesting stories. I, I it's, it's one of the things that, you know, when I found filmmaking, when I found animation, when I found storytelling, it really felt like it was the thing that I was put on this earth to do. And, you know, I think part of that is, uh, I think you know the best kinds of stories and and, and films and art uh, for that matter really do elicit empathy they they kind of remind us of our shared experience. they allow us to you know see the world through someone else 's eyes to you know uh, uh, to uh, feel another person 's story as if it were ours and and I think that can 't help but make us feel more connected and I just love that aspect of what it is that we do and so i 'm going to continue to try to find stories uh, that I can tell that I can bring to this world uh, um, to make movies that, you know, somehow enhance people's lives in some infinitesimal way. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for this experience of, uh, of directing Bumblebee, it really was been one of the most, uh, you know, creatively rewarding experiences of my whole life. And I learned a ton. I mean, there, you know, we having worked in animation for 20 years. Um, there's a lot of stuff I knew and a lot of stuff I feel like I can do in my sleep. But this this movie really challenged me on a lot of different levels. And um, you know, as an artist, you're grateful for those experiences that you've never done before. I learned so much, and I'm excited to apply the things that I've learned in uh, in my films to you know to come down the road.
1: Awesome. Well, listen, best of luck with them. I've loved like his stuff so far, so I can't wait to see what's next. Thank you very that. much. Cheers. Cheers.
0: So that was Helen talking to Travis Knight, and now it is our turn to talk about Bumblebee, which I thought was a lot of fun. I'm maybe not quite as up in it as as you two as Optimist Prime here, and. uh <laughs> But I can see why you like this because you, like me, are children of the 80s and that means that you played with Transformers toys, I'm Mm. guessing, Helen?
1: I did. I had to go over to my friend Dario's house because I didn't have any. But he had many.
0: Many, many wonderful toys. Speaking of 80s references. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, you played with uh, Transformers toys Mm. and Jimbo, I think you were a
2: Transformers toy. I am a Transformer. Uh,
0: All I can remember playing with is Mirage, the F1 car. That's the one that I think my parents got me. Mm-hmm.
2: The, the one I wanted the most and never got was Jazz, the racing Porsche. And I love Jazz and I never I never had that toy. Jazz, of course, <laughs> so horrendously killed in the first Transformers movie. He's ripped
0: in two. And then uh, Optimus Prime comes up and, and gives him a sort of, you know, a bit of a eulogy. He goes, oh, Jazz, he was a wonderful warrior. And then basically goes... Anyway, <laughs>
2: <laughs> some of my favourite moments. It's amazing. Could I just say, from a, from an '80s geek point of view, the most exciting part of, uh, most exciting piece of information I think they got from Helen's interview. Uh, with Travis Knight, which I haven't heard but she told me about, was that the Transformer the Bumblebee fights at the beginning yes, is Blitzwing. Blitzwing. And I hadn't got that. And the reason no. I hadn't got that, because I was like, well, he can't be Starscream, because A, that's not the right plane, but also Starscream is alive canonically later on. But Blitzwing, of course, is another triple changer. And the reason that's why I didn't flag it up, because he should have turned into a tank as well.
1: Well, yeah, and as he said, I think they were planning to have the triple change and then, you know, money uh, was a thing. But you know who's missing, Helen? I do, but tell everyone else. AstroTrain. That's exactly what I was going the to say. Other, so
2: the original Triple Changers were Blitzwing and AstroTrain, because course. Blitzwing, of course, was the jet and the tank, and AstroTrain, as we know from the name, Helen, was Certainly. a space shuttle and a train.
1: Which, I mean, naturally belong together. Yes. It makes total sense.
2: Yeah, he was purple and black, and I had that toy, and I loved him.
1: Wow! Yeah, um, I think what we're going to find in this podcast is my lack of Transformers knowledge. I've seen the movies. Oh, yeah. I did see the cartoon back in the day. Like I say, I played with some of them, but I was in, in no way, you know, in on the canon, so or any of the oh, canons. spelling
2: canon. Yeah, so <laughs> you're uh, not big on energon cubes, or you know.
1: I, I realise that those are a thing, but mostly from the first Transformers <laughs> yeah. movie. Wait, I, no, was I, that I, energon cubes.
2: Energon,
0: no, no yeah, it was yeah, the old spark.
1: Ener-
2: Yeah, it was their fuel. Energon cubes were their fuel. fuel.
1: Yeah, I was. No, I have to say, when I saw this the second time, I was looking at his Energon levels. They go up and down a lot through the film, so he can kind of recharge his Energon right as he goes.
2: Is this from his 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 gloriously eighties wireframe heads up display that he has, which I thought was genius?
1: So on the sort of the right hand side, they have the Energon levels, and it, it actually does go up and down quite a lot during the film. So presumably. He can kind of recharge himself, right?
2: Or it's just really badly edited. Yeah, one or the other.
1: Well, I mean, I th- I'm giving what? them the benefit of the doubt here. Like it m- it's like maybe like one of those kinetic watches where every time you you, you, know, shake, you shake your wrist, yeah. he, he gets a bit more energy on. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's what he's doing when when <laughs> Ellie Steinfeld comes home and finds him in the uh, in the garage just pumping away. I'm yeah. just getting my energy on levels up. That's what I'm doing.
1: That's what he would say if Bumble he B. had a, v- a voice box, of course. Yeah, jazzing. yeah.
2: Shake weight, jazzing everywhere.
1: No, that's wrong.
0: Jazz hands. <laughs> Bumblebee! It, voiced, of I'm course, singing a Bumblebee
1: song! He was voiced, of course, by Dylan O'Brien, by the way, if anybody was paying attention I to recognized
0: that. I recognised the voice instantly. Yep, I said to myself, course. that voice, Chris, is Dylan O'Brien. You've star, interviewed him on the podcast. It's a maze runner Dylan maze O'Brien. Maze runner Dylan
1: O'Brien. So he, he, he began and finished the year, you know. We, of course, I'm sure, as we he all cured remember. Death, Helen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> as we all remember, we definitely remember that. A Maze Runner film came out this year.
2: You know, I didn't see it, and, and I've seen the it. other two, but I didn't see the Death Cure.
1: It's fine, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but he he began and ended the year, so well done to Dylan. And he Brian, began Cranky. and ended the year. Yeah. That's the
0: bar. Well done. You began and ended the year. That
1: beca- that came out a little meaner than I meant, but he was he's totally fine in this. You he's have good.
0: become you've become Negatron. He
1: I would is never
0: Optimist Optimus Prime. So um, so the first five minutes of this movie oh sent you into sort of paroxysms God. of
2: of just joy and delight oh, it really did it, really, it was, it was so gen 1 transformers heaven just like but seeing the transformers as they were meant to be you know seeing them in their original incarnations was With extraordinary the transforming noise
0: yeah because yeah because it's one of those things yeah. you get the sense that uh, through the well obviously you get the sense that michael bay has no real love or affinity or affection for these characters i would say
1: Oh. I don't think he was
0: playing with Transformers movies. Yeah, I'm with, was, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think right it on. was a gig. He, yeah. It was a very lucrative gig and that's why he made five Transformers movies and he did his best. And some of them were f- films. <laughs> I like the first one.
1: <laughs> I like the first. I like
0: the first one a lot, but the second one not so good. The third one uh less said about that the better. The fourth one uh, is a bit of a write off and the fifth one
1: hey, oh,
0: <laughs> But um I don't think he has an affinity for those characters Michael Bay but I would say that Travis Knight probably does. Oh, he does. does.
2: No, you can, you can tell. I mean, there's affection for this from the very, very beginning. That Cybertron sequence where you see all of the kind of favourites. You see Shotwave, Soundwave. Uh, there's Wheeljacks in there. You see Ravage coming in. Everyone loves Ravage, looking, you know, actually like a panther and not like whatever the hell he was in Bay's version. Um, which, which one did he appear in in Bay's version? I mean, they all blend into one. to me, He's if the I'm with you. He's tape, the little, isn't he? He's the tape that turns yeah. into it, yeah. But, the, I mean, it makes... If you're going to be particularly pedantic uh, you could point out that there is really no way that Soundwave would have had a tape ravage in him while on Cybertron because obviously they have their Cybertron forms and then when they come to well, Earth they get that their human That was my question because
1: Bumblebee is in uh, something like a car form yeah. well, even on Cybertron yeah. and, and uh, Travis Knight's thing is like well yeah he has that it's, it's actually an alien car. Well that
2: is true that is true that's canonical. Yeah. Okay
1: but they wouldn't have uh, an alien tape
2: well, yeah, I mean, that feels a little bit like, oh yes, they're really retro in outer space.
1: Yeah, um, I guess.
2: Also, Ravage is not just a cassette tape. He's a micro cassette tape, which is even more niche.
1: Wow. Um, I think I had a
2: Ravage, actually. So did I. I've still got him. I've got him at home. Love him.
1: I think wow. I think Dario had one that turned into a tape as well.
2: That could have been Frenzy, who had a loud scream, or Rumble, who could yeah. create earthquakes.
1: I just like the challenge of putting them into one shape and then putting them into the other. I don't really remember who was who.
2: Or Laserbeak or Buzzsaw. They were oh, both God. birds. Oh, God. Well, oh, God. What do, have you, I unleashed? do you remember uh, Zoids? Yes, I do remember Zoids. Monster machines with the power to move. You are listening to Stuart McConey's <laughs> Nostalgia Hour. <laughs> of course you're not. You're listening to the Empire
0: Podcast. Uh, so anyway, so yes, the first five minutes of this movie. This is interesting because we had a, a bit of a, a chat about this on the way over here. I really like this movie when it's not been a Transformers film. And the bits when it was reminding me that it was in the Transformers universe and it was Bumblebee fighting against kind of Decepticons, oh, been there, done that. I kind of switched off a little bit. So the last 15, 20 minutes of this movie left me a bit cold. and I, And even though I grew up with this stuff, and even though that first five minutes should have been manner from heaven
2: for me, mm. it, it didn't work for me. Is it because the the wounds, Bay's wounds run deep <laughs> and you're slightly traumatised by it all?
0: I mean, maybe. I mean, yeah, it, sh- it should have worked for you because, as you say, they, you know, I don't have the, the level of knowledge that you have. I mean, I just went, oh, it's the one that that's the tape. Oh, it's <laughs> it's oh, it's the one that turns into the jet. Oh, brilliant. but not their names. Uh, but yeah, even though they looked like they did in the cartoons mm. and in the comics... I was still a little bit like, Oh, I'd rather get to the what I'm what I've been told is kind of a heartwarming yes. girl in her car and kind of story. K- ET yeah.
1: And it is very E.T. I, I, I really did like the Cybertron scenes um, just because they felt like the cartoons did. I did watch them sometimes. I still don't remember who was who. But, <laughs> I mean, even you know.
0: down to the dialogue, which is basically things yeah. like, destroy the evil and all that. You
2: know. I like the fact that the Autobots are the rebels. Mm. And there's a, there's a whole Star Wars thread running through this film. There's a whole thing about, like, we are the Empire. when they literally have the line, where is the rebel base in it? you know, And then, of course, you've got Bumblebee, who's... Lost his memory. He's basically R two D two. He's had his memory erased. <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on. And then, of course, he okay. has a hidden message, which he, yeah. which, when he injures himself, suddenly comes out. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's basically a cross between E T. and Star Wars, and that's the film.
1: And that's okay. <laughs>
2: and that is okay. Yeah.
1: Um, no, I think I think uh, that it definitely borrows from a lot of films. Mm. And just I I don't know if you can get that eighties feeling without borrowing from those films because yeah. you know it's obviously not E T. is not the only you know, visitor visitor that ever went through a house and wrecked everything, but it's the one we think of probably, and it's mm. and its imitators have made it a, a, an absolutely cast iron trope. So you kind of expect Bumblebee to at some point do it here, and lo and behold, he goes through the house and wrecks everything by accident while trying to figure out why you know how stuff works. And it's super charming, but also mega destructive and expensive.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, you mentioned the first Transformers movie and I think one of the problems that Transformers movies have all the way through is I mean it's just very Michael Bay isn't it? the hypersexualization of those films mm. well, I mean when we're introduced to Megan Fox in the first one she's bending over a motorcycle I love the fact that you don't get that at all with Hayley Steinfeld's character and she feels like she's an actual Properly, sort of rounded character with actual depth, and the relationship mm-hmm. she has with Bumblebee, I thought, was incredibly touching.
1: Yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was really, really good. And full marks to Christina Hodson who, who wrote the screenplay yeah. for that. I think, because
2: she's doing Batgirl, Br-
1: isn't she? Yeah, which is uh, I'm now, you know, very much feeling confident about as a result mm. I think she, she's done a really good job she wrote the story for this and the screenplay um, but I think that's absolutely right I think she's she's just a fully developed character and she's not just the girl mm. um, and equally you know if that is her love interest in Memo who I thought was super charming <laughs> and really really adorable I really liked him uh, Jorge Lende- Lendeborg uh, Jr. If he is a love interest, he's also not a cookie cutter yeah. handsome boy love interest there's a there is a cookie cutter handsome boy, and he is basically ignored by the film pretty much after a couple of scenes
2: yeah that's it's an odd i mean i wonder that felt like it was there to kind of subvert tropes yeah they have that they have the kind of mean girl scene, and then they completely do away with them
1: yeah
0: yeah, the last time we see the uh, the really mean girl. Uh, Bumblebee had just jumped onto her BMW and, dis- <laughs> yes. and destroyed it. And I was waiting for that to come back in some yeah. way.
1: No, I, I'm, I'm totally fine with somebody destroying a BMW which has the license plate you wish. Um, because either of those facts alone would be enough to warrant the destruction of a car, but both of them together. Wow. It's, uh,
2: I well, love that sequence, by the way. I love him just taking the prank too far and not really realising and then trying to hide. And it's just, he's so adorable and I do think this is something that, that Bane never got, that his Transformers have no personality and Bumblebee has so much inner life. And I think, you know, Knight's sort of like a background really comes to the fore here that his Mm. experience with stop-motion animation means he has a real eye for bringing sort of silent personality to life.
1: Yeah, the the little character beats are absolutely lovely. The the scene on the beach with the two of them sort of (laughs) um, trying out how to hide and so on is really He
2: buries his head behind a rock. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's lovely. And also the scene where he wrecks the house. Mm.
2: And it then, then she confronts the him, deep. and he panics, shakes, cowers, and then turns into a car to hide. Yeah. Yes,
1: I mean his his intelligent level, if I'm honest, is a little. <laughs> it's a little all over the place, isn't yeah. it? To make those scenes work, like some of them are a little too naive, a little too childish, childlike, yeah. perhaps is, is the right word. I suppose um, it's
2: because his his lack of memory, I suppose, means yeah. he re- re- reverts to kind of an almost infant-like state. So yeah. he
1: becomes the great warrior again. He by becomes the end.
2: hardcore. Yeah, and gets glowing red eyes when he does it. So. <laughs> It goes on a killing spree. Yeah, and why not? And why not?
1: That's
0: the thing I was thinking I Was I was watching, uh, watching it, going, "Oh, this is a PG. Oh, that's nice." And then <laughs> I guess because it's robots, you can get away with it a little bit more. But people are robots are stabbing other robots with mm. swords, slicing robots down the middle, producing people to like gloop.
1: Yeah. Like, full on gloop. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember that
2: happening in Mac and Me.
1: Yeah. Aww, Maybe it did. Mac and Ortiz. Me.
2: That film was shit.
1: <laughs> it was terrible. Um, but yeah, we should probably mention the, the bad guys are, so Shatter, I believe, is Angela yes. Bassett, and Dropkick, yes. Justin Throw. <laughs> I, I see I know stuff. I don't have IMDb Did you open. like
2: the throwaway bit where the Decepticons created the internet? Yes. Like, that was genius.
1: That explains a lot about the internet though, <laughs> doesn't it? Like, a lot. I also thought that whole sequence was extremely war game and i'm yeah, always here yeah, for something yeah, that's extremely war games and i really really loved the fact that john cena finally said they're literally called decepticons because how has no raised ever- any
2: red flags
1: yeah it's like come on people
2: yeah, yeah i like that a lot yeah, he was i really funny. enjoyed john cena I, I know that there's been some mixed reaction to him but i re- i thought he played it perfectly as a really over the top kind of 80s antagonist mm. and just lines like there's a door in my way you know yeah Uh, he's loads of fun i got a lot of time for john cena i was doctor of Thugonomics.
1: of course Uh, i was worried of which school gives a phd in Thugonomics?
2: well helen i'm glad you asked it is in fact oxford university where you yourself are an alma mater and i suspect have a minor in Thugonomics.
1: i i don't admit that
2: anyway (laughs) what's Thugonomics? it's it's john cena is the doctor of Thugonomics. that's what he was referred to as when he was wrestling when he does wrestle i imagine he's still referred to that way he is apparently a doctor of thugonomics, and 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 um, and what is thugonomics? <laughs> if, if wrestling is anything to go by, it's generally sort of twatting people around the head.
1: Oh, oh, okay. okay, yeah, yeah sure, All right. it makes sense. Yeah, get that. Um- <laughs> What were we talking about? I have no idea. John Cena.
0: Let's talk about John Cena. John Cena. Yes. Um,
1: I was worried about his friend at the beginning. I thought that was a classic, my friend has died and therefore (laughs) I'm going to be set on your tail scene. And obviously Travis addressed this in the interview, but his friend is alive. It's fine. But I thought that was... His
0: friend's alive. I haven't heard the interview yet.
1: Yeah, his friend's alive. So I I didn't realise that. Did they not want to show that? They, I they? guess they don't ever bother going back to him he did miss his date canonically that's uh-huh. what Travis Knight says okay. but he is alive and uh, and I honestly was kind of surprised by that I thought he had died and that was why he then becomes obsessed with finding Bumblebee not that he doesn't have any other reasons to do so I suppose um, yeah,
0: his mate gets fridged at the beginning Yeah, John Cena's not happy about it Yeah, he wants to find the, the Bumblebee who even though he's seen Bumblebee being very nice and go hey Luke, this is a mistake he still wants to like mm. shoot him and stuff
1: I'm interested in how far Bumblebee got from the mountains down towards what is clearly Santa Cruz type area. I mean, that's quite a long drive. I've done the drive like that. It's a long way. I mean, so. he's
2: literally a car. Well,
1: but yeah, but like he's also like super dead practically.
0: <laughs> yeah. And what's the time frame of this film? Because it's obviously, 1987, Bumblebee arrives on Earth, pisses off John Cena and the army, mm. gets shot to shit, loses his memory, yeah. loses his vocal cords. Yeah. Careless, it's a hell of an afternoon, and then. Just with his kind of just before he passes out, scans the VW Beetle, mm-hmm. presumably becomes a VW Beetle,
1: yeah.
0: and then next thing we see, he's in, uh, he's in Henry he's in Reagan's junkyard, junkyard yeah. with the bloke from Blue
2: Bloods.
1: Apparently, but how? Well, that's what I'm asking.
2: Yeah,
0: okay.
1: maybe
2: maybe they found him and he got sold on eBay to the guy from Blue Bloods.
1: But no eBay in 1987.
2: You make a very valid point. <laughs> what was the '80s version of eBay? Car boot sales,
1: um, antique shops, yeah. <laughs> t- t- t-
0: classifieds, auto trader, and um, that sort of thing. Yeah, but
1: there's but no, yeah, but yeah, there's I mean, no he's, paperwork. He's obviously just, you know, gotten down there. I, I guess we shouldn't look too carefully yeah. at these yeah. things. I suppose well, it's but just because hey.
0: whenever, um, Hayley Steinfeld's character, whose name is Charlie, thank you. So, whenever Charlie goes to Uncle Hank's mm. uh, um, big garage place it's clear that Bumblebee has been there for some time because she's like Ooh, that, oh, oh, I really want that Volkswagen that's yeah. yeah. kind of the thing so how long has Uncle Hank had that car? it's a good question feels it's like a-, a while I yeah. need to get Len Careyou, who plays <laughs> Uncle Hank aka Henry Reagan could be the same guy could be the same character it could be Hank Henry uh, from Blue Bloods the Blue Bloods, AKA, Bloods cinematic universe the, yes aka the
2: worst character in the history of television <laughs> but I thought he was okay in this so whew, that was alright did you not think, and, and, and I felt really sorry for, for Bumblebee because I thought he was outmatched by John Cena because obviously, <laughs> because it's John Cena, Bumblebee could, could never see him coming because you can't, you, you can't see him because he's, he's John Cena. Is this something to do with the economics?
0: This,
1: I believe this is a, a signature John Cena move and a, a sort of in-joke in wrestling. Yeah. I only know that from watching an episode of Graham Norton, though. So
2: It is true. He waves his hand in front of his face and says, you can't see me. That's
1: wow. He
0: does. Yeah. Yeah, see, all I have to go in with John Cena is that scene in Trainwreck, in which we very much did see him coming, so...
2: <laughs> Not sure that you works for like me. You look like a dude! <laughs> I love that film. Well, I don't love that film, but I love that scene in that film.
1: Well, we'll have to unpack that one day. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> with a train therapist. Yeah. Um,
2: but... aging Dr. Freudemus Prime.
0: <laughs> Wow, okay. Uh anyway, so I didn't I wasn't sure that Cena worked necessarily as an antagonist because I don't think his character was consistent basically from one minute to the next what does he want to do does he want to find bumblebee does he want to kill bumblebee does he want to save bumblebee Mm. make your mind up pal
1: i think i think he's actually i like him and i think he's pretty consistent because he is generally out to capture this dangerous thing for most of the running time until he realizes that it's the lesser of two dangers um and uh he described it i think himself as a sort of um Heel to babyface turn, which is another oh. wrestling term that I learned, <laughs> from Graham Norton. I know um, a heel
2: is. What's a babyface?
1: Babyface is a good guy.
2: I thought they were just faces.
1: Well, uh, I don't know. He is the. Term oh, okay. Babyface. So
2: face and heel. Okay, good, yeah. good.
1: So he, you know, so he actually kind of comes around. But I quite, I quite like that. That has happened in other things. Again, if we're using the ET analogy, he's a little bit like the character who looks like Spielberg, whose name I forget. Peter Coyote. Sure. It's Keys. Yes, Keys.
0: Okay. So you think it's like it's him? Okay. I think it's
1: kind of like him. All right.
0: Interesting. But one thing I did love about this film was the relationship between Charlie and Bumblebee, yeah. which I thought was really, mm. really lovely, really, really sweet. And can I just say that it, this shit ain't easy. Hayley Seinfeld deserves a lot of plaudits for her performance in this because she's acting opposite... I don't know what the hell she's acting opposite. A mm, ball all. on a stick. Yeah. a guy. Yeah. I mean, who knows? A guy waving a flag. Yeah. Three, three people wearing orange outfits I, who knows who knows what she was acting opposite but the, the, to infest that performance with yeah the believability and the heart and the charisma that she has and the soul that, that she shows is, is no mean feat.
1: I also think this is a really this is a film that makes a, uh, an unusually good use of the dead parent trope in a lot of kids and and teen films mm-hmm. um, because I think it's you know I think it's cheap and it's overused and a lot of the time they're stripping the parents away so the kid can have an adventure because if your parents are there you're going to be okay that's kind of the the feeling that you get. Um, so in this one, it is a ge- there is genuine upset that runs very deep in her character. It's not always um, addressed, you know, overtly. But stuff like the scene where she's shocking Bumblebee back to life, I thought was just a beautiful little scene of like her dad died of a heart attack. She mm-hmm. she she's not just seeing Bumblebee at that point. She's seeing a chance to sort of almost change the past. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just phenomenal um, sort of storytelling, kind of you know echoing. Um, but yeah, she, she gives it some real emotional heft that I think it, it, it might not have had in, in lesser hands, both as an actress and in terms of writing and directing as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, kudos as well to the writer of the film, Christina Hodgson, for uh, constructing the hoops so that she has to jump through in order to get Charlie to actually dive into water
2: <laughs> as a plot point.
1: Yep. I mean, I'm not sure I'm not sure how specifically she helped once in the water.
2: Yeah, th- like exactly that. Like he <laughs> was going to be fine or not and there's I mean it's not like you can give him the kiss of life, he's a robot. So <laughs>
1: She sort of inspires him, I she guess. She
2: swam so. down, dove in and gave him tacit moral support and that brought <laughs> him back from the brink. A punch in the shoulder, a little
1: <laughs> tap.
0: There you go. You've got this buddy. Yeah, yeah, that was was interesting.
2: I did like that final uh, fight between um, Shatter and Bumblebee when they have the big thing. What I really liked about that is, and I thought when that kicked off, I thought, oh, here we go, here we go. Now we're back to Bay Territory. And we weren't. And I think there were two reasons for that. One, I thought the choreography was actually quite inventive. They did interesting things. Mm. They weren't just wailing on each other. Um, And also I liked the fact that we kept cutting back to charlie and seeing the action to a certain extent from her point of view mm-hmm. so you kept that kind of human element to it but it also grounded it and stopped you getting quite bored of the sort of metal on metal action that was uh, that was a really good decision i thought
1: yeah definitely yeah. Um, and again and Shatter was a properly scary opponent at that point she's a lot bigger than Bumblebee um, she's a really formidable fighter the first couple of punches she lands in that fight or you know moves whatever mm. they look devastating and I think that's really important because otherwise you'd be like well he's the guy above the titles so he's going to be <laughs> fine um, yes. but you actually kind of worry for him for a second you're like what, how's he going to get out of this are, are the other you know is, is Optimus going to have to turn up and save him like uh, how, this yeah. I genuinely was wondering at that point so I don't don't see how he beats her on his own, which he didn't either, and he came up with something clever.
0: Well done, Bumblebee. Good work. Uh, yeah, I was expecting Optimus Prime to turn up uh, at the end and save him as well, but that would have kind of defeated the purpose, really, of the, of the movie. yes. Um, otherwise, we would be watching an Optimus Prime movie.
1: But the lovely bit on the Golden Gate Bridge is, is great.
0: Yeah. It is good. Although, how does this fit into the timeline, do you think?
1: Well, I mean...
0: Not that we really care.
1: No, I mean, tra- Travis slightly sidestepped this one, as you noticed in the interview. Uh, but it basically, it's more or less the same canon, but they had a little bit of wiggle room, I think. <laughs> so let's assume that they're all on Earth right now. They regroup, and then at some point in the 30 years in between, they've gone off and had some other adventures. How do they launch themselves back into space? I don't know, but I'm sure they have ways. They're Transformers. They probably just take a junkyard worth of stuff and make a sh- spaceship out of it or uh, something. Yes. I mean, we know how they land but this is the only time we've ever seen them take off and they had a special tower to do that Um, Uh presumably they must have other ways of doing that unless Shatter and Dropkick have brought one with them to the moons of Saturn honestly some of you out there probably know the answer to this and are going (laughs) to deluge me on Twitter with all these all
2: about the Energon cubes
1: right but how though (laughs) okay but don't tell me anyway the point being they've probably gone off to another planet and then come back to this planet this um, is
0: like Heston services for Transformers, isn't it? That's, <laughs> that's basically what it is. I guess so. It's the stopping point. You, you stop here for a few minutes, you refuel, you grab yourself a Kit Kat, maybe a drink, maybe visit a bog, maybe don't. It's entirely up to you. But then you don't want to be holding it for another two, three hours until mm. the next service station. So I would definitely go to the toilet. Um, uh,
1: no, I really want a Kit Kat.
0: I really want to go to the toilet. Do you want anything, James?
2: I'm I'm
1: good. Cornetto?
2: Sure.
0: Good. Mint. Um, I want to go back to the Charlie... Uh, relationship with Bumblebee as well because you're right this is the first movie am I saying that you're right to myself from 20 minutes ago? You're right me from 20 minutes ago this <laughs> is the first movie and uh, but as much as I liked the first film and as much as I thought at the time the Shia LaBeouf's performance as Sam Witwicky was a breath of fresh air in terms of blockbusters and that you had this kind of almost panicky, realistic Woody Alleny y yeah. back then kind <laughs> of you know, protagonist dropped into the middle of this big action movie, and it was a real breath of fresh air. Now you look at it and you go, oh, "I'm not so sure about that character," but but Charlie is is a really refreshing protagonist to to hang your your hero coat mm. on. And you're right about the uh, the um, the the dead dad thing that could have been a, a real sort of. A bear. Really I cliche.
2: also like the other parent dynamic I like the yeah. feeling that it had that it had that very Spielberg thing where you felt that the ultimate arbiter of authority wasn't the shadowy government agent it was actually parental disapproval like like having your mum mad at you is in these films the worst that life can possibly get and there's echoes of that in this there and I really enjoyed her mum in this
1: yeah she was
2: uh, great I, I, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's a lovely touch I think
1: the whole family dynamic, actually, is, yeah. uh, is really well done.
2: And the fact that the stepfather was actually a really nice, if doofus kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the moment where he... the I saw this on Miami Vice, you know, when he does the little... Uh, the, in the car... The car chase, in inverted <laughs> commas. Which is, which is the man... I mentioned this in the review. This is the main point of differentiation, I think, between this and the Bay films. is There's a multi-car pile-up in which almost no cars sustain any damage whatsoever. <laughs> it's like the most tame incident ever whereas you can imagine Bay would have found a way to have like a sinkhole open and the entire city fall into it in here you get a slightly dinged bumper
1: yeah, I have to say I liked the lack of massive damage um, yeah. because the other film like in the same week as Bumblebee that we're going to be also spoiler specialing, Aquaman has loads of insane amounts of collateral damage that is just yeah. never mentioned again. The
2: body count is catastrophic. The body count
1: is unbelievable. I mean, genuinely, it's certainly tens of millions, probably hundreds, <laughs> and it's never mentioned. Um, and yet here we have, you know, the, the stakes are, as you say, they're lower and it's all the better for it because they're more human, they're more understandable. Yeah. Um, we can kind of comprehend that. Uh,
2: the uh, worst thing that happens in this film is that the house gets trashed and her mum is going to kill her. Like, that's that's as high as the stakes get.
0: Yeah. I also like the fact that it wasn't just a retread of, of uh, Sam's parents yes. from the first yeah. Transformers,
2: yeah. who were really lovely at the
0: time. And then as the sequels went on, they got more and more to do and they just got a little bit more crass and just didn't quite... Didn't quite work, and there's a there's a tendency with the Bay Transformers movies to give in to that sort of crass humour. So you have Transformers, you have Autobots uh, pissing on John Turturro, have yeah, robot balls, balls, all sorts of stuff. This movie didn't go down that road. No, great soundtrack as well.
1: Yes. Yeah,
2: water wall bangers.
0: Yep. Yeah, although I have to say, this is a film set in 1987, and there's no <laughs> REM uh, on there. the the, the document. Their album Document came out in 1987 with It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine and The One I Love and Finest Work Song, any one of which would work gangbusters on this soundtrack. Uh, I was waiting for It's the End of the
2: World as We Know It to kick in, but alas, no.
0: Maybe I'm,
1: it's maybe it's overused now.
2: Yeah, I think. also it doesn't feel 80s to me. Like it feels mm. more timeless, R.M. It doesn't feel like it's pigeonholed well, to the 80s. If she's listening to the Smiths, she's listening to R.M. But I, lo- I love that moment not a Smiths fan when he spits <laughs> the tape out. That's great. Yeah.
1: Bit. Also, not a Rick Astley fan, though. So let's no, get this
2: No, Also, funny. I, I also I like the John Hughes motif going through the whole Breakfast mm-hmm. Club thing, uh, with the Simple Minds bit and the fist pump. Love the fist pump.
1: Yeah, that that was also. And, and without wishing to read too much into this, right? The the Michael Bay movies, not just the Transformers series, but a lot of his movies have really. Uh, glorified American militarism and, and there is this tendency in the American culture certainly these days to not just respect the military but really glorify yeah, the military almost And it yeah, yeah. And, um, and I felt like you know John Cena salutes him and he returns the f- with the fist pump and that is a, a gesture I don't think Michael Bay would have done I th- again I think he would have saluted back I think he would have yeah. and, I, and I really liked that he didn't and that may be reading way too much into it but I, it really worked for me
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Very quickly on a Smith's note. It's been an interesting year for the Smiths and Morrissey in movies. There's a big uh, thread about them in Ant Man as well. Uh-huh. And now in this movie as well. Wow. Yeah. And it's coincided nicely with Morrissey going off the deep end politically, so that's nice. Well, yeah. Well done, him. Whew. Well done. Uh best touch in the movie, best musical touch in the movie was the use of well
1: The touch. The touch.
0: <laughs> I really like that. That was, that was good.
1: That was very clever. That was, of course, if I'm right, the theme song of the original Transformers, or is it just in the movie? The, the, movie. the, the movie. The movie. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And it was recorded famously in Boogie Nights.
1: Yes, I remember that by
0: Mark Wahlberg, yeah. who, of course, is the star of
1: <gasps> some of the Transformers It's all connected. Sequels.
0: It's all coming full circle. He is, of course, Digglertron. <laughs> see what he transforms into. That
1: would be terrifying. <laughs>
0: it's a whole different kind of film. Let me tell you. Uh, Anything else to add on this movie before we wrap it up? Not after that, no. No, That's it. Uh, I just want to read out one bit of trivia from uh, the trivia page of Bumblebee on the IMDb. This is the first live-action Transformers that Michael Bay did not direct, but he stayed on board as producer. Right. On that bombshell, that
1: is it for our
0: Bumblebee spoiler special. Uh, It's been quite fun. It's been good. I've enjoyed this we should do this more
1: often. <laughs> you don't have to sound quite so surprised. Well, I didn't think I would
0: get quite so much enjoyment from talking about a yellow car. It's the greatest yellow game car. to play.
2: The, Did yeah. you not find that really distracting during the film? <laughs> like In every scene, like there'll be someone on your own going, yellow car, y- yellow car. Yellow yes. car. You can't,
1: do,
0: just, you
2: can't do the same car.
1: That's true. You only so get to you, yellow car once. Yeah. So once but, you've done Bumblebee, there's not very many other yellow cars. Well, yeah. There's that ruin ruin one the in Yosemite or wherever. So uh, we should explain. This is a game that I think I introduced to the Empire crew when we went on uh, on a, on a field trip once um, and the game is this if you see a yellow car in traffic say yellow car and you win that's it okay it can't be parked it can't be stopped at a light but it can't be parked uh-huh. it has to be a car not like a van or a lorry those don't count and it has to be yellow, not like gold. That's, and and I mean, this that's is it. based
2: on the principle that yellow is the least common colour of car.
1: Yes. And it's actually quite challenging in places with yellow taxis, which I generally disallow. Yeah, so that's like definitely a disqualification. A New York taxi yeah. wouldn't count. But no. that makes it harder to then spot the yellow car that isn't a taxi. So it's a real game of skill.
0: Yeah. We once had a yellow car. My dad uh, owned a Nissan Sunny.
1: Wow. Well.
2: Dotson Sunny uh, Estate.
1: My mum had a yellow Beetle. So it's entirely possible that I know Bumblebee personally.
2: My mum had a yellow Mini Cooper.
1: I mean, I still think I win. All
2: three of us had yellow cars, is what I'm saying.
0: (laughs) Oh,
1: okay.
2: That's
0: amazing. That is. That's amazing. And on that bombshell... (laughs) It's the end of the podcast as we know it, and I feel fine. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to this spoiler special. Our next spoiler special is going to be, oh, I don't know. I don't know what our next spoiler special is, because then we'll be in 2019. And (gasps) who knows what delights will be thrown at us in the course of that year. Keep your ears peeled for more spoiler specials coming your way. Uh, The regular podcast is up every single Friday. In the meantime, thank you so much to Helen O'Hara. Thank you. No, thank you.
1: Well, okay then.
0: Thank you, of course. James Dyer.
2: Autobots, roll out. <laughs> That's all I've got. It's all you need. So It's all you need. Thank you, Helen.
0: And it's goodbye for me. I'm off to check out the frozen banana stand because you know what? There's always money in the banana stand. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye.